0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode twenty-nine of the Making Noise podcast. My name is Adam Knauf. I am your host. Today's episode features harpist Danielle Kuntz. Danielle is a new music harpist, and she is also the member of she is a member of the Blank Experiment. Danielle is a specialist in collaborating with composers, and she offers consultations to help composers learn to effectively write for the harp beyond what you would learn in your orchestration books. You know, we learn the notes, we learn the range, um, some of the possibilities, but that's where Danielle comes in. She really helps composers understand what is required in order to make these notes sound on the instrument. And, because of that that's led to our conversation today which focuses on this amazing online workshop that she's offering called the toolbox sessions uh this takes place between may 19th to the 21st which is um 11 days away no nine days away whoo i can't do math so you're definitely going to want to sign up for that asap uh it has a list of amazing presenters uh instruments include bassoon, clarinet, guitar, harp, oboe, percussion, piano, saxophone, uh, trumpet, violin, voice. Uh, There's some amazing people on here who are doing presentations on those instruments, some of which include previous guests of the Making Noise podcast like Lisa Nayer and Marianne Parker. It's also a great networking opportunity. Uh, These are people who work extensively in new music and collaborating with composers so um they're exceptional with being able to communicate how to effectively write for their instruments once again beyond what you'll find in your orchestration book some of the practicality things uh, i could say as a guitarist there's a lot of things that composers miss or don't recognize or maybe a little bit too afraid to try so this this is uh going to be a really great thing i will be in attendance and because Danielle is so kind, she's offering a $10 percent or discount to anyone who uh, registers using the code MAKINGNOISE22. That's M-A-K-I-N-G-N-O-I-S-E 22. So if you use that when you sign up for uh, the Toolbox session, you'll get a $10 discount. And two other things I want to mention before we get to the conversation. Um, midway through for those who are watching you'll see this but those who are listening it won't it won't sound any different the zoom 40-minute notification came up i was unaware that this was a thing and so danielle was so kind for us to switch over to her account and uh that happens midway through the conversation and then the other thing is that uh for the next few months i will be uh on a hiatus so this will be the last episode for uh, the foreseeable future but I do promise I will be back and we will be having more fun uh, interesting and unfiltered conversations so with all that said let's make some noise my name is Adam Kanaw and I am a collaborative composer join me in the search for a career in classical music this is the making noise podcast a lot for for being flexible and and working you know making this work well happy to yeah absolutely for anyone who listens to this we we uh danielle and i had tried once before to have a conversation we had the conversation we had the conversation we didn't yeah (laughs) and then there were some serious technical difficulties that could not be um fixed in post production so here we are round two but still round one for the the audience
1: <laughs> using the cheap mic on my end which is at least reliable unlike an air quotes fancy microphone
0: so crazy that's still still amazing i mean I, it, yeah it there's so many variables right there's so many variables with, with this stuff um but that's part of what we do we we, we adapt we have to be flexible <laughs> in the situation in the in the moment and um, you know, going on stage and it's like, oh, you actually only have forty-five minutes. You don't have a full hour to perform, so you have to remove some pieces, you know. And then you're like, okay, shit. <laughs> <laughs> what do I want to cut? Yeah, yeah. Um, but Danielle, I had a I had a realization: is I think I'm pretty sure you're the first harpist on the Making Noise podcast. Yeah, I think so, <laughs> which is so cool. <laughs> You're you're the only, you're the only harpist so far to uh that I've had a conversation with. Um but that's that's so part of why you're here is sort of the harp, but like mm-hmm. there's more to it. So uh can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do and uh your your primary reason for being here today the part primary reason for having this conversation.
1: Right. So I know that, you know, you're a composer. A lot of the guests that you have had on in the past are composers. I'm not a composer, but I primarily work with composers. So I'm a, I call myself a new music harpist. Basically my goal is to get new music performed. Um, ideally music by composers who are still living, which is even better. And just like, you know, foster that collaboration between your know, performers and composers and you know, just lower some of the barriers that, have been built up over the years so for harp specifically i feel like there's just been a lot of i don't know a harp is a confusing instrument to write for i will admit that but i think harpists have made it even more intimidating so harpists will get music from composers and be like oh this isn't playable this is awful they didn't think about the pedals they didn't think about anything and that's what comes across in their interactions not oh, let's try to make this better. Here's some tips. Here's some of this. Um, So harpists are annoyed. Composers feel like they're never going to figure it out. And there's just, there's been this divide. And I really want to break that down. This will get into the backstory. When I was a student, most of my friends were composers. So I kind of got into new music a little bit more naturally because my friends wrote music for me. I wanted to play it. And that's, that's really how it started. And then realized, you know, it's a lot more, you know, it's just so much more rewarding to play music by people I know, people I can actually collaborate with, be part of that creative collaboration process. And that's something that, you know, we also do with my ensemble, The Blink Experiment with, you know, our mission is just people is to just get new music performed. And we have a very weird instrumentation of, you know, (laughs) Oboe, clarinet, bassoon, saxophone, and harp. Like there was no music out there for our specific instrumentation. So um, when we had formed originally, it was just clarinet, saxophone, and harp, which again, there's not rep out there for that. So they, the group formed because it was a group of friends who wanted to play together. And they just asked their friends who were composers to write music for them. And that's really just, we've kept going like that. People see us, they write music for us. We play it, and we do it again. So it's, just, it's been an incredible group to be a part of.
0: There's there's um, the the background where you said how you you got into new music through collaborating with your 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 who are your friends right mm-hmm. like people who you spend time with you just naturally end up like <clears throat> there's like this natural sort of uh, collaboration that takes place. Because just by virtue of spending so much time together. So Mm -hmm. I think that it's cool to hear that because it's almost like from day one you were I don't want to say born, but like you came into classical music to perform new music, you know?
1: I I feel like that's yeah. I I fought it for a while. Not fought it. I thought it was a side thing. I thought I still was gonna do the your primary harpist career where you do all the auditions you try to win an orchestra job try to get a teaching position and until then you teach kids and you play what for weddings like mm-hmm. that's the harpist career mm-hmm. and I always thought okay that's what I have to do I'll do new music too because it's fun it's unique it's something that not every harpist does but in order to be legitimate I need to keep going this route and I got burned out so fast because you can't do anything and then the motivation wasn't really there to keep playing the standard rep when it was just so much more rewarding to play the new music because mm-hmm. you know the world doesn't need another 10 recordings of you know the foray impromptu or the WC dances like they're great pieces of music mm-hmm. but there's so many good recordings out there we don't need more mm-hmm. but we have all this new heart music that hasn't been recorded yet or performed why not do that
0: absolutely that's that's such a um it's such a big thing to think about i mean because <clears throat> you know in in music school we're so uh, steeped in 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 the the tradition of it
1: mm-hmm.
0: that's not necessarily a bad thing i mean all things have some sort of tradition and and stem out of somewhere but um but especially for someone like you, and I know like me, you know, like when I was playing guitar, when I played classical guitar, I had a similar sort of experience. I didn't want to play the 19th century rep. Uh, I will say that I don't think that my foundations as a classical guitarist are strong, like like the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily because I didn't go through those early stages or whatever you want to call it, of or that traditional route of playing the, you know, the canon. But... Um, but I was very much like you, which is probably why I'm a composer. <laughs> 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 I didn't want to play any of the music, you know, that was just like one, four, one, five chord progressions, you know. And so um, it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear with performers, especially, how they came into new music. And now, right. you're, now you're in the blank experiment. And as you said, it's like a really eclectic ensemble or instrumentation, at least, you know.
1: Well, I mean, we're kind of weird people too.
0: It's <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a necessity in some ways. Yeah. Um, so so you had this experience with your friends in undergrad that kind of leaned you into new music. Um, what I'm curious, what were your early experiences like if you could recollect collaborating with composers or maybe even yeah. like thinking about it where you were then and where you are now? I, I know it's a very different... There's a long time between then and now, but uh it's
1: just... it's, it's been a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's been yeah. a few years. Sure. Um, I think I didn't I didn't know how to start. I just kind of got thrown into it. And that's something I would love to see become more systematic for performers is you know, learning the language of new music essentially, which isn't really its own genre because it's there's so many variations and styles within like the new music categorization but we we get so used to our own you know the standard repertoire trained how to do you know all our scales all the runs all the regular chord chord progressions um things like that but once you get into new music there's it's a different kind of complexity instead of you know the most challenging feature being this fast 16th note passage it's polyrhythms and extended techniques and you know if you're not writing in a tonal manner sometimes as a tonally trained classical musician you get thrown into this music I'm like i don't know what note is right what note is not no one's going to tell if i miss a <laughs> note because it yeah. it all sounds and like you have to learn how to train your ear to get used to the dissonance learn how to count rhythms learn practice strategies when you can't practice with the metronome because everything's changing so much you don't have a consistent beat to be able to just like turn on the metronome and just play this passage a hundred times until you get it right. Like it doesn't work that way. Um, So when you go from, make that shift from standard rep into new rep, there's just, there's so many differences and I would love to see that gap bridged a little bit more. Um, So be able to have a, you know, a freshman play something that, you know, has some familiar elements, but adds in two new, Types of things, maybe have some asymmetrical meters and things like that, where you're not just doing it all at once. Um, Mm. My first experience with actually, you know, the asymmetrical, asymmetrical meters, you know, like the five, eight, seven, eight, it was in a wind ensemble. So it wasn't even solo. Like I had to have it all right. It was, there were a lot of pedals in the piece, like chromaticism. It was just like, it was a mess. It was a crazy mess. Like I had never learned how to count asymmetrical meters. And maybe that's also as a, you know, a harpist and doing primarily older rep versus, you know, maybe someone who was, you know, a brass player and plays in one symphony all the time and their rep is written a little bit later. So you do get more of that kind of stuff. Yeah. There's a, there's a high barrier of entry for performers to get into new music. And I'd like to see that bridged a little bit more. I know that didn't completely answer your question.
0: No, no, no. No, it it, was definitely... I do have plenty of stories. Sure, sure. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, it is something that I've heard a lot about, especially like I've written a lot for saxophone and I've heard Mm -hmm. often from saxophonists that when they're trying to teach their younger students, like, you know, late high school, early college students, trying to introduce them to more extended techniques and stuff, a lot of the repertoire that is uh written that might introduce like a multiphonic or something it's either like really like uh what's the word like just not enjoyable music yeah or it's way too hard and there's there's no there's like nothing in between there's no solid middle ground where it's like okay here's an approachable way to play a few multiphonics and at the same time it's not like completely overwhelming to the point where
1: Every you note's know, a multiphonic.
0: Yeah, and then you're inside of a quintuplet, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, so what you're saying is resonating quite a bit. Or I should say, I've, yeah, I've, I've definitely heard that before. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think there's something with us composers, when we, especially when we start getting to extended techniques, that we want to explore, like, the sound of, or what is possible with the sound. Mm-hmm. And then that just suddenly like goes into some other deep direction of of like where tonality is over here and like everyone else is over there you know
1: (laughs) (laughs) well I mean there's definitely room and there's that need to explore yeah and you know have that you know I guess if you're thinking about it in you know academic terms have your lab where you're just experimenting and trying out things and doing stuff but then if you want to get it performed by people who aren't only the specialist in new music and get a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Then it needs to be refined a little bit more.
0: That's very true. Yeah. There has to be some sort of, um, uh, middle ground there or marrying of the craft and what, uh, I guess the accessibility of not accessibility of what it sounds like, but of the playability. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's definitely something that I, I, I try to, I battle with, with my, with what I write and, um, it makes me think. This is another thing. I don't want to get too far off because we definitely are going to talk about uh, toolbox sessions. Oh yes, <laughs> but uh, but you have such a, a phenomenal social media presence, and one of your recent posts, I think it was like yesterday or something, was about this sort of topic. Like it was, so, it was talking about what was it exactly? It was, actually, it might have been this exact thing, right? It wasn't it about um, having for performers to Oh man, now I'm forgetting what it was.
1: I think it was along oh. these. I'm I'm in that stage of life where I have to write my post in ten minutes or they don't happen. Oh, so I don't right. always remember <laughs>
0: But it, it was it was a great post though. It was um oh man, I'm I'm totally blanking on what it was. Um, it was something along the lines of what we're talking about, like writing music or or performers approaching new music or making it oh.
1: more accessible for performers to get involved with new music
0: yeah yeah
1: um so like if your first piece is a barrio sequenza mm-hmm. you're going to leave that experience maybe you had a good performance but there would have been so much work that went into that it would be like you know if you wanted to learn how to run if you went to start running marathons and your first one was you know a full marathon before you even learned how to run a 5k like right. yeah. you're gonna be like yeah i did it and i'm dead and i'm trash and i never want to run again in my life. Versus, you know, if your first run is a half mile run, you finish it feeling good. And like, you could have gone a lot longer, but you finish it, it's done and you had a good experience. And that's kind of the way I think performers need to be able to get started with new music in a way that's manageable, achievable. They can have a good experience from the beginning and then keep growing and building Mm. instead of, you know, just getting thrown in the deep end and like, well, if you can't figure out these crazy polyrhythms, sure, go back to Mozart.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That And that's an instance where, coming back to our conversation, uh, the performer could approach a composer, hey, could you write a piece for me that does X, Y, and Z, but within these, these limitations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know? Um,
1: and it's something where, like, educators also need to be in this conversation to start incorporating this music into their, you know, pedagogy and their, you know, sequences of repertoire that they have students studying and be like, okay, well, we usually want to introduce things in this order. How can we fit in, you know, some new things, new concepts into these Mm -hmm. strategies?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a really important thing. Um, It's, in the early in the early years too, I think it's one one of the challenges is understanding exactly what the career trajectory is supposed to be. But it doesn't matter because the more tools you're provided with, toolbox sessions, <laughs> <laughs> the more tools you're provided with, then uh, the you know the more um, I'm very incoherent today. Apparently, um, oh same. same. <laughs> you know you you're able to. Be more varied with your um, your your craft or your career,
1: right? And I'm also very much an advocate for new music. So if we can get all the people that are stuck in classical music into being stuck in new music, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the end of the world.
0: Not at all, no. And both both things because I mean, I
1: mean we need to support the music that's actually being created yeah. today that's you know relevant to us instead of you know 19th century music isn't really our music in the same way
0: absolutely it's a very very different um just the the time period alone is already different enough to culture, say it's like different
1: context different everything exactly and like it doesn't mean it's not good music it's good mm-hmm. music but it's also we need music that's relevant for us and maybe the extreme experimental music isn't that either mm-hmm. but it's experimental it's innovating it's trying new things it's experimenting but then bringing that into more of a coherent you're know, getting performers involved you have to play the music to actually understand it hear it and let it infiltrate mm-hmm. you know what we're used to hearing so it
0: just yeah. has to be played going going back to what we were saying earlier like trying to find a middle ground you know where where all of these things can exist it's like there's the extreme the music that does extreme things there's like 19th century and before music And then there's the music that that kind of falls within the middle of all of that, that Mm -hmm. is representative of uh, sort of um, a way in, you know? Yeah, and
1: something I talk about a lot also is you don't have to like everything. Like, there's Mm. so much variety in new music. There's so many composers out there Mm -hmm. all writing very diverse music. You don't have to like everything, but I guarantee, like, there's going to be music out there for everyone, so find a living composer who writes music that you love.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Play it. Be their super fan. <laughs> Just like there's there's so much variety. Like everyone's gonna find something. And maybe you dig the super experimental music. Like I I think it's cool. But I also know not a very audience I have. You know, for all my performances, that may not be the type of music that they're there to hear. So I try to you know think Strategically about programming and um, putting things in order that makes coherent sense to them, and instead of going, okay, here's Mozart, and then we're gonna throw in a new piece that's totally another extreme, and there's no way that they have any context to think through that. So, audiences are smarter than we realize because <laughs> we, you know, think about how we share the music with them, but you know, not everyone has to like everything, that's okay. But just because you don't like one piece of music doesn't mean you don't like any music being written today and you have to go back to Mozart and Beethoven.
0: It's so true. I I, I love that so much. I mean, it's so, you know, um, I know uh, the Beatles, for example. I think the Beatles is one of those bands. Most people like them. There are people who hate them. Mm -hmm. But I think that they have such a diverse repertoire that there's got to be a song in there somewhere that everyone would like in some way. Right. um but and the same thing with new music and that's the thing is like new music is sort of like an umbrella term it's just like music that's being written but today um i love that approach it's the openness like you have to have that open mind um i often say to people who are uninitiated to new music is when you're listening to it close your eyes and don't expect anything specific don't go in with any sort of expectations and allow the music to happen and when things you know you hear something it goes off whatever sort of follow that and see what what comes next um but don't go in there you know it's a challenge when you have this conversation with people and they say like, oh this band they're, they're they're kind of like bluesy kind of jazzy and then you listen to it you are like, this is neither of those things <laughs> you <know? laughs> You know, it's like say so if you say to someone, "Oh, we're going to go see a, an orchestra perform today." And they're like, "Oh, orchestra, Beethoven, Mozart." I got it. And then they get there and it's like ho and Ligeti, <laughs> you know, and they're like, "This isn't Beethoven." <laughs> so um so so that openness, that open-mindedness is is it sounds to me like you're saying is crucial.
1: Right. And also, you know, context is important. So mm. There's music that's not written to be feel good, happy music. And I think that's what we associate with classical music because, in comparison to what it used to be, like there was dark classical music, but when we hear it, just because we associate like, you know, tonality with, you know, predictability, it doesn't mm. hit us quite in the same way it probably hit the original audience. Like there's some dark Mozart, but we don't yeah. listen to Mozart and think, oh, that's dark. Yeah, yeah. Even, so, I think just kind of thinking through the context, so not all music. So if you're thinking about, like, film scores, there's a lot of music that you hear in a film score. If you heard it in a concert hall, you'd be like, ooh, that's really edgy and weird sounding. <laughs> but then it to- makes total sense, you know, in setting the stage for, you know, the film score. And it's kind of interesting just to hear things in different contexts and realize okay you do actually hear a lot of contemporary music you just don't realize it
0: that's such a good point yeah that is that is that is so true i mean yeah if you remove the visual element of film and only listens to the the soundtrack or the the film score or anything it would be exactly that
1: but it's the film that makes it tangible for the audience so maybe we could start to incorporate some more of those things mm. for our audiences. So instead of sitting them in a dark room in their hard little chair, saying, listen to Ligeti, mm-hmm. give them something tangible to help make sense of this music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's a you know, visual element or I don't know. I don't know. I'm brainstorming too, but thinking about how can we make our music more tangible?
0: the making it a little bit more immersive mm-hmm. you know adding other elements outside of just the 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 sound and then seeing people on stage that's right. something that i've definitely i've thought a lot about the last couple of years and i think that's a it's a really fascinating and important thing like you're saying I mean, I mean and i'm
1: not a producer in the same way i'd love to but there's a time limit on everything right now, but I'd love to like collaborate with people, you know, to be able to create these experiences. Right. Um, what I at least try to do is at least try to talk to the audience, you know, just to tell them a little bit about the music I'm playing, give them a little bit of context. And that, that goes a long way, even just doing that. And it also just helps, you know, create that connection with the audience. Cause if they like you, they're more likely to like your music. Same way, you know, I didn't start getting into new music because I love the music. I got into it because the composers were my friends. I wanted to support them. And as I started to do it more, I realized this is cool. This is awesome. I'm, I'm into this, but it was that those relationships that really got me started.
0: The more, the more we go into this conversation, Danielle, the more I'm hearing the collaborative nature of your, uh, of your, of how you do things, you know, like talking to the audience. Getting to know them, talking a little bit about the piece, providing all these ways to experience the music, you know, it, it's so evident that for you, collaboration is a really big part of the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which is the toolbox sessions. Yeah. Right? Uh This this is a really cool thing. I was really excited when when you emailed me about it. Um, can you talk about the toolbox sessions, what it's all about, how, how, how it came about, I think would be really fascinating. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. So like kind of the thing that's been, I've been mentioning over this conversation is I want to be able to connect performers and composers together. So like rewinding back to when I was in grad school, one of my music business proposals, was to create a database to connect, you know, performers and composers together. And my professor said, I don't think that's going to be viable. Like, how is that going to pay for itself? Um, But Toolbox Sessions actually kind of goes along that same inspiration, but I think it will actually work. Um, So what we're doing is we have, I've brought together 12 experienced collaborative musicians, and these are people who work with composers, they're involved in new music, they have that experience, um, and we'll all be talking about specifically how to write for our instruments, Um, just to give composers a good context for the capabilities of our instruments, what things work well, what things you need to be careful about. Um, Because I know you've all taken instrumentation orchestration classes, um, which are great, but there's just like so much information that you get in that time period. I took those classes too, just as a music theory major, and I taught the class on harp, and I was an undergrad. I didn't know what I was teaching. Mm. I was like, this is what the harp is. (laughs) Like, as I've, you know, gone through and I've worked with tons of composers, I've developed a framework on like how to teach writing for a harp in a way that, you know, is systematic. It gives you that framework to be able to then make sense of all the crazy extra information that you have to try to figure out. Um, so it's like having that framework and that's what all the presenters are going to be doing. So we have, um, Lisa and you are talking about text setting for voice. So if you're writing for voice, there's a lot more than just the notes that you're writing and the rhythms, but thinking about, um, the text itself and the actual sound you're making and how that fits with the pitches. And I'm not a vocalist, so that's something that you have to think about as you're the composer. And so she'll be going through that. We have trumpet player, violinist, Um, guitarists, I know a lot of people ask about writing for guitar. Um, And then plus all the members of the Blank Experiment will be there. So if you're planning to write for the Blank Experiment, you should come, because we'll give you the lowdown on how to write for our instruments. Um, But yeah, this is something I'm super excited about this, just to help foster more collaboration between performers and composers. I need to do a lot of work on the performers just to get them open to it. But a big barrier is that they get music that isn't playable. And if you're someone who does not have experience in new music to start with, that's a huge barrier. So if you know, a composer can write something that is at least, you know, playable at a basic level that you can then improve on, that's going to really help foster that collaboration. So from the composer side, that's kind of the action stuff. And then performers just need to be open to it. Um, so I'm working on that. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm super, super excited about this. And it's a, it's a great group of people.
0: It really is. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, as you know, Lisa, Lisa Nair was on the podcast before. And um, there's there is a way there is an actual <laughs> not, I don't know language of communicating how to write for instruments or how to, you know, like, like the language of uh, collaboration in a way, mm-hmm. you know, how to talk about these things from a performer's perspective and a composer's perspective. Um, and, and it seems like that's exactly one of one of the big um, separation between what you're offering and what like the Samuel Adler study of orchestration book does,
1: mm-hmm. you know? That's because the books are giving you the, rules Mm -hmm. so this is the range stay within the range this is the cleft that instrument uses here's a list of extended techniques that they'll do Mm -hmm. um but there's so much nuance that you have to think about so i don't when i'm working with composers i don't usually say things are impossible Mm. i'll say this is going to be difficult is this what you want is there a way that we can tweak this or what are you trying to achieve because a lot of things are possible but you have to think about you know the context and how do you want to optimize it and balancing? So you don't want to have the entire piece be wickedly difficult, but you can also, if there's something that you want, you can pick and choose and think through strategies and things that work in one context may not work in another. So there's a lot of, you know, there's just a lot that you have to think about. So the guidelines, not hard and fast rules and the rules that you can break, but you have to know, you have to know the basics and the boundaries before you can actually push those boundaries instead of just like you know bulldozing through them you're like oh why do people think that this music isn't playable i thought it's fine (laughs) but you can intentionally you know with intention challenge the playability
0: yeah that's such a good point um like i know um ava who is the oboist in um the blank experiment um ava talks a lot about how in every orchestration book you look at when it comes to the dynamic range of the oboe like Mm -hmm. the first first fifth from like what is it b flat three all the way up to f4 like you or maybe e4 you can't get quieter than like mezzo forte Mm -hmm. and composers constantly um try to put a quieter dynamic, like piano or, or you know, double P or whatever. Yeah. And, and she's like, she's like, this isn't possible. <laughs> like, it's so hard. <laughs> so, so that's what you mean, right? Talking about like right. the Right, so just like, you and... know,
1: actually understanding the nuances. Because like, you know, you all know the ranges. You can, mm-hmm. you have the guides in the books to reference that. And that's helpful. But just like actually being able to talk with an experienced collaborative musician who knows, you know, what kinds of things to watch out for, what kinds of things do composers think are really difficult, but actually are not? Um, Mm. I know um, Katie Moritz, the violinist, um, we were talking the other day and she was saying, you know, composers are terrified about double stops, but a lot of them really aren't that bad. You know, they're in the standard rep. People play them all the time. People know how to do them. Um, She's like, I want composers to be less scared about that stuff too. Right. I know for harp, The textbooks all talk about the range, they talk about the pedals, they talk about glissandos Mm. and some extended techniques. That's like not most of the unplayable music I get has nothing to do with any of that. It has to do with the shape of the hands, the action of playing the harp. Um, Okay, the textbooks will mention we don't use our fifth finger, but you know, thinking about, okay, it's really difficult to reach a large interval between our third and fourth fingers just because, you know, there's so little finger independence. Most people cannot stretch that far.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I still get music all the time that has huge intervals on the bottom of the chord that just really doesn't work. Um, that's the kind of thing that composers need to know, not necessarily um, pedals, although I do think composers should know about the pedals, but the textbooks go through all of that as well. And most of the time when I get something unplayable, it's not because of impossible pedals it's because stuff literally doesn't fit the hands. So So that's a, that's the foundation of what I teach.
0: It's like a practicality problem,
1: right? You know, a shape of the hands kind of thing. There's also, there's so much, like I could talk for hours about harp writing issues. Um, Most of the standard rep harpists all say, Oh, just go study harp music to learn how to write for the harp. Um, for the harp specifically, that's not extremely helpful because the harp has changed so much over the last two decades or not, last two centuries. Um, it used to be a much smaller instrument, strings were lighter tension, they were closer together, so a lot of the music that was written in that time was written for that harp. Um, but the modern harp, you know, has more, far more tension, strings are further together, it's just a different instrument. So if you're trying to write like you did for, you know, the 19th century harp, it's not gonna work so well on our instrument. On the flip side, we have a lot more capabilities with the harp. Like you don't have to be worried as much about the harp not being heard. You don't need to have six harps like Wagner did to make sure that the harp (laughs) is heard, Um, but you have other challenges. So just understanding the actual modern harp rather than just studying all the scores on the from the 20th century, 19th century.
0: The, the, I, I'm glad you brought up that point because that's actually been something that's, uh, that I find to be a little bit of a challenge mm-hmm. where if I'm running for an instrument and if I go to look at the rep, it doesn't exactly. Cause I think it's just the way that I think about playing the instrument, seeing the notes on the page doesn't tell you the physicality of what goes into playing the instrument. Right. I do that as if I'm playing the violin. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's, that's, that's where I, I, like, I can see the notes. Okay, I know these notes are possible in this order. Or like your friend who said double stops on the violin. Okay, I can see these are possible. Um, I don't know how far apart the fingers are when they do those double stops. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I were to ask them to offset it, like flatten one of the notes so that the interval mm-hmm. becomes wider, like what does that do to the finger position?
1: Yeah. On the violin yeah.
0: might not be as big of a deal on the double bass. Right. Huge. Right. Exactly. Or like, or like trying to throw in like a, a quarter tone or something in there. Like, what if you did that? Like, is that practical? If you're on the violin and you're all the way up high, is a quarter tone a practical note to try to introduce? Or is the distance so mm-hmm. like the finger moves to the smallest amount that like it's negligible? You do the vibrato yeah. and
1: you're already going. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You, vibrato.
0: yeah. 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 Those are the things that have always challenged me.
1: Yeah, and uh. that's the kind of stuff that you just you have to talk to a collaborative musician who understands those things and can think of that context instead of, you know, cut and paste mm-hmm. thinking cuz you know context is important. That's a big thing that I talk about with extended techniques. There's a lot of things that are possible in isolation that well, may not work in context of the piece. You have to think about the larger context, like what are the hands gonna be doing? Is there time for the hands to move to do this? Do you have enough hands at this point? Some techniques use two hands and you have to remember that or jumping ranges. Um, a jump in one context might not work in another, depending mm-hmm. on you, what the pedals are doing, what your hands are doing, everything else, what instruments you're doubling in an orchestra, just like there's so many, Variables. Well. There's so much for you guys to remember. Let us help you. <laughs> Come alongside and help you. Support you. Please, you. Partner please. you
0: <laughs> I love that. I, I yeah. I always one of the things I've, I've probably said this on the podcast before, but often when I'm collaborating with a performer, I'll say to them, "Talk to me about your instrument as if i as, as if I'm five mm-hmm. and I know nothing about it, so that I can like gather how that person thinks about the instrument." and uh and i can also get like a crash course as if they were teaching a beginner which i am right you know? like if i were to sit down with you and be like hey danielle i gonna write this piece for you talk to me as if i don't know anything about the harp because i literally don't <laughs> you know <laughs> i've always thought of the harp as like um like uh driving manual transmission because you're pushing in the kind all the is. pedals and stuff and your hands are doing things and so it's like shifting the gears and steering <laughs>
1: Yeah, I have to methodically plan it all out. It's, it's crazy. But there's also a lot that's possible.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I feel like composers kind of fall into one of two categories. Either they don't have any idea of the limitations, they just write anything, and then the performers get in, they're terrified. Or the composer starts out terrified and just has, you know, just a scare to really push the boundaries mm-hmm. at all, because you, you don't know where they are. And I don't want you to have to deal with either of those. I want you to be able to write with intention, know that your music is playable, know what questions to ask instead of you know, asking a musician who may not know how to help. Know, you know specifically what kinds of questions to ask. Is this interval playable? Um, does this pedal change work? Or is this a better option? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause then even musicians who are not specifically trained in collaboration will probably be able to answer those types of questions versus maybe it's playable. I don't know. Mm. I can try to play through it kinds of things. So specific questions will always get, you know, more specific
0: the, answers. That's um, very true because then there could be a veil of uncertainty when when primed in that way where like if you ask them, you know, uh, like, like, like the example you just gave, where like, I don't know, maybe it's possible Mm -hmm. as a composer. I would hear that and think like, maybe they don't want to do it then. Yeah. (laughs) Or like, or like, okay, maybe I shouldn't write that in there and kind of, uh, you know, that's obviously like, um, a self-conscious thing, but it goes back to, it goes to like, you know, when we're talking about like having that sort of communication and being able to, to, um, to effectively ask what it is that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. And, and as the performer too, to be able to, uh, to relay what is needed and also have that, um, I guess, explorative or experimental sort of like, um, Mm -hmm. approach to it because earlier you said you don't like to say things are impossible. And I, and in my mind, that implies that you're open to being like, well, let me see how this works. You
1: know? Right. Or let's find a solution. Right, right. Because a lot of times, you know, as, you know, classically trained musicians, we assume that notes on the page are absolutes. Mm. Something I realized, you know, from the early days of working with composers is that there's a lot more flexibility and composers are, you know, they're not married to the specific notes that they chose. Sometimes, sometimes they are, and that's fine. We'll work around that. but. You know, there were so many times I was like, I don't know. I can maybe make this work. And the composer was like, we can switch a couple of notes. That's fine. We switched two notes in the section that was killing me <laughs> works great. And it's just like those little tweaks. And I don't know, it's just, it's sometimes the coolest thing. And the, you know, to be part of that process is, I don't know, I love it. I'm really honored by the composers who let me be part of that process.
0: Uh, that excites me that excites me just to hear that because i i feel i feel the same way when i get to work with people who are so invested in the process and working together and then by the end of that whole session of collaborating you're like wow i feel so <laughs> motivated and like like you know optimistic about what we're doing here this is fantastic you know it's, it's an exciting thing i have a um i have a question about the toolbox sessions you you talked about what it's um the reason behind it and mm-hmm. what it's going to, you know, what the content is going to be more or less. Um, can you talk about what the actual experience is going to be? Cause it's virtual, right? Yes. Yeah.
1: Um, so we decided to make it virtual just to make it easily accessible to everyone. Um, partly cause all the performers, you know, musicians who are presenting at the workshop, we're all from all over. There's some of us, you know, on the East coast, Midwest, West coast, you know, all over. So, and then we would just want to be able to reach composers as well. So it will be a virtual format. Um, we'll be hosting, it'll be about three presentations a day with a panel discussion afterwards. So, and we have different uh, panel topics. We'll be talking about our experience running, you know, consortiums, cause a lot of us have collaborated with composers for consortiums. Um, talk about that. The Blank experiment, we'll be talking about, you know, running a new music ensemble, what our collaboration process is like with the composers. We work out some of the ins and outs of just running a new music ensemble, especially with all of us, you know, across the country um, for much of the year. Um, So it will be a virtual format, but there will be time with each of the sessions, you know, to be able to ask questions. And then we'll also have, you know, probably a Discord server for people to interact and talk and things like that so and then it will all be recorded so the people that get the vip access will be able to access the recordings and you'll probably want that um even if you can join everything live to be able to reference you know these workshops and presentations Mm. at a later time
0: that that is incredibly beneficial to have especially like you said before if it's a composer who's interested in working with the blank experiment or any of the performers in the in the um in the conference or in the uh, workshop.
1: Yeah, no, these are great people that you will definitely want to get to know. Um, Yeah, no, my mission, like, yes, come learn from these people, but these are also people that could be potential collaborators or, you know, they are busy, help you find someone else. Like it's, it's going to be great networking.
0: Absolutely. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. I will be in attendance and I will be taking all kinds of notes. <laughs> um, and and definitely asking all kinds of questions and stuff uh uh is that is that what the panel is is that like a
1: yeah it'll be so it's gonna we'll have different people from the presenters on the panels will be like you know three or four people we'll have a couple of discussion points and then you know just be open for questions people to you know ask questions pick our brains on some different topics Mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah that that is always such a um that's actually where like you, you do start to get into the more collaborative stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at, at least within like a, at least within like a workshop or some sort of webinar or lecture or whatever. Um, and so you said there's three presentations a day, and it's three days. It's long. It's three days long,
1: so it's May 19th through the 21st. So it's coming up. It's been a little crazy pulling it together, but we definitely <laughs> hope to do this again. Maybe do some you know, quarterly events, you know, smaller events in the year between, you know, the bigger events. Maybe we'll do it in person someday. It would be cool. But again, I do love the accessibility of virtual. I don't know. I feel like that's been a pandemic benefit that a lot, it's kind of been normalized to do virtual events. Um, cause I had, I had my toddler who was born like right before the pandemic hit, um, everything moved virtual. There was so much stuff I was able to participate in that would have been a pain or probably impossible with like a three-month-old baby um right no it's i met so many people you know through the pandemic on you know new music twitter and everything so i do love the accessibility of virtual and i hope that's something that continues i want to continue it for sure
0: absolutely that's one of the biggest yeah like you said it's, it's one of the biggest silver linings um, I mean, how...
1: in-person is always better, but it's usually not a question of, will I attend this virtual or in-person?
0: Mm-hmm. It's usually
1: a question of, will I attend this virtual or not at all? Because the in-person mm-hmm. people will probably do it regardless. The virtual people, it's usually the only option they have in most cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, because no matter what, all if it's in-person, it has to take place at a very specific location. So like
1: travel and
0: travel, and lodging, which
1: is crazy expensive. It's inflation's here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gas prices have been ridiculous. <laughs> um, I think the virtual it's been, yeah, like you said, it's been such a benefit for all of us. I mean, you like you and I, for example, we've never mm-hmm. actually met
1: right. in person. Hopefully we, in October for your concert.
0: Hopefully. But... <laughs> fingers crossed right um but but we've had so many conversations and we've gotten to know each other pretty well Mm -hmm. um and which which is so exciting and that's all because of this because of the virtual experience right and ability to kind of just interact um so the timer went off we've had a a bumpy road of uh (laughs) trying to make this happen um so before we kind of close up here are there any other things that we didn't touch upon that you want to mention? Or um, perhaps, like the application, is there a deadline for the application to uh, submit for the toolbox sessions? Or uh, you said there were tiers, right? Are there?
1: Yeah, so we do have two tiers available. We have a general admission, which will just get you access to join the live sessions. Um, and then we have the VIP, which is live sessions plus access to the library archives, simply because, you know, it's going to take us time to get all that uploaded, build that library, create that access. So it is priced a little bit higher. Um, We do have a student discount, though. So if you are a student, um, let us know. We can get you um, that discount as well. Um, But tickets are available on the website. You can register as late as the 19th, but it would probably be better to register um, a little bit sooner. But um, you can go ahead and register toolbox dot Um, be sure to follow our social media, sign up for our email list. Cause we'll, we're sending out all of those details that way as we get them figured out.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll that, last that's... minute,
1: but I'm, yeah, I'm learning this all too. I,
0: I think, I think that's how most things are the first time around. The first
1: year is crazy. And then everything you figured out the first year applies to the second year and then you. Make some tweaks, make some improvements. So it'll be easier, but this year's a little nuts.
0: Right. And then then the second year, there's a host of all new problems. Like sort of (laughs) not problems, but uh, uh, obstacles. Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this sounds so cool. I love that you're doing this. I can't wait to be in attendance. Um, And I'll just
1: mention, we'll probably have the speakers that we have this year. We're probably going to have different people next year just to cover some different instruments maybe Mm. some of the same people but different topics um Mm. so you'll want to come this year and catch the people we have some incredible people lined up i'm i'm really honored that they're joining us
0: the inaugural toolbox sessions coming may 19th
1: 2022
0: yes fantastic um so so how can people reach out to you uh your socials and and website and all the good stuff
1: Yeah. Um, For Toolbox Sessions related stuff, I mean, you can reach out to me anywhere, Um, but toolboxsessions.com or Toolbox Sessions. For me, my website's daniellekunz.com, K-U-N-T-Z. Then I'm on all the socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, a little bit of TikTok, but I also (laughs) am not actually active on there. I just post stuff and then realize I have 20 comments and when I log back in a month later, a person. <laughs> um, but yeah, find me on the socials, YouTube. Um, happy to, if you want to reach out, happy to chat, work with you, all of that.
0: And uh, one final thing I want to mention too is that Danielle also offers um, a consultation for composers in writing for harp. Yep. So any composers out there who, who want to get into the harp writing business, Danielle is your gal. Reach out to her, and she will uh, she can help you help lead the way.
1: Oh yeah, and I do have a course that I'm launching in June, um, just to offer all that in a systematic way. That's you're going to be a little bit more accessible than getting you know five private lessons with me. So that will be coming soon. If you want to sign up for my email list for updates,
0: oh hell yeah, <laughs> I will personally sign up for that. Um, Danielle, thank you so much. I, I think I think we did it
1: yay we did <laughs> well uh, happy to come back anytime if and hopefully zoom will work a little bit better
0: yeah yeah i think so um well i hope so right we... we'll find out soon <laughs> um yeah thank you so much for being here talking and uh i can't wait for the toolbox
1: sessions same here thank you so much for having me